Good morning. Great to see you here this morning. For me, it's a, a real privilege and honor to be able to stand here and share from God's Word. And I trust He will apply it to all of our hearts. I'm speaking to you on the subject of when your world falls apart, what then? On the morning of April 18th, 1906, the San Andreas Fault settled violently, and San Francisco was shaken by a terrible earthquake. Huge cracks opened up in the earth. Buildings shuddered and collapsed, and fires swept throughout the city, leaving it virtually destroyed. Thousands who went to bed peacefully the night before awoke to a world that had fallen apart around them. Every day we see and hear about extreme suffering on TV, read about it in the paper, watch it on the Internet, within our families and people we know. For many, it's as though their world has fallen apart. And I find it very interesting that many people often feel that God has abandoned them whenever tragedy strikes. Now, to find some answers, we're going to look into the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2. It makes sense to start there because Job deals with timeless questions of suffering and loss. Even though the story is 4,000 years old, it could have been written yesterday. The book abounds with mysteries. Who wrote it? When, where, why. But the greatest mystery is found in the subject matter itself, the mystery of undeserved suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? For centuries, this question has been pondered. The book of Job does not answer those questions with a theory. It answers them with a story. We're, giving, we're going to examine one man whose world fell apart around him. Why did that happen? And what did he do about it? I came across a very interesting statement about Job. And it said this, quote, If seismic devices could measure personal tragedy then Job's earthquake would have registered 8.5 on the Richter scale. In one day, he lost everything he owned and almost everyone he held dear. Even though Job's suffering was extreme, it was by no means unique. In one form or another, his story is reenacted every day in a broken and fallen world. And during such times, we find that Job personifies our grief and our painful sense of loss. Job was a real man, not a mythological figure. He's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, where he's classified as one of the three great men of the Old Testament, along with Noah and Daniel. He's mentioned also in the New Testament by James, who refers to Job's perseverance. The first five verses 
tell us three things about Job. First, he was a righteous man. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You could talk for hours about those four phrases, blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. But suffice it to say that Job was as good a man as you'll find in all of the Bible. Second, he was a rich man. Verses 2 and 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, by, by spelling out the details about the sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys, our text is telling us that if a list of the world's richest people had been printed 4,000 years ago, Job would have probably been at the top. The third thing about him, verses 4 and 5, he was a religious man. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now here is the rarest of all rare creatures. A truly wealthy man who loves God more than he loves his money. And not only that, but a father who takes responsibility for the spiritual welfare of his own family. The point of these first few verses is very clear. By the world's standard, Job was successful. By God's standards, he was righteous. Here's a man who truly had it all. He was wealthy and godly and popular. You couldn't find a person who would say a bad word about Job. He's as good a man as you'll find in the Bible. Now, that fact is crucial to understanding his story. Let me say it carefully. What happened to Job happened because he was a good man. Nothing in the book of Job makes sense unless that is true. Job is a case study in the suffering of the righteous. As hard as it is, it may be to understand, it was his righteousness and his prosperity that brought on the enormous suffering. And yet the suffering was undeserved in the truest sense of the word. The Bible teaches that there is a personal being called Satan, who once was an angel, but who rebelled and fell from heaven to earth. 
And in that rebellion, he led one-third of the angels with him. Those fallen angels became the demons. From the day of his fall until now, Satan has had but one purpose, to frustrate God's plan by seeking to destroy men and women on the earth. After all these thousands of years, Satan is still at it. I say all of that to make the point that Satan was behind what happened to Job. <clears throat> Job never knew that, and God never told him. But the writer of the book lets us peek behind the heavenly curtain to see the unfolding drama. While you ponder that, consider what happens next. The story suddenly shifts from heaven or from earth to heaven. Job apparently never knew anything about this part of the story. While he was on earth tending to his vast holdings, Satan was having a conversation with God. Verses 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Hal Lindsay put it this way a few years ago in his the title of his book, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. In this age, the earth is under Satan's power and domination. Thank God the day will come when Satan and all his demons will be cast into the lake of fire forever. But that won't happen until Jesus returns to the earth. Between now and then, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Satan roams about on the earth like a roaring lion, seeking men and women he can devour. Now that brings us to the key passage. Notice in verse 8 that it is God who brings Job's name up. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's the other side of the coin. Satan was behind Job's trials, but God was behind Satan. It's not Satan who brings Job up, it's God. It's as if God was saying, all right, Satan, you're looking for a good man? Let me tell you about Job. He's the best man I've got. I don't think you can break him down. And in verse 9, we come to the key question of the book. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Satan is accusing God of bribing Job into worshiping him. After all, Job has it all. A huge loving family enormous wealth, a great reputation, everything in the world a man could want. No wonder he worships God. Who wouldn't? And that's what Satan means when he says in verse 10, 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. He means something like this. You gave him all that, and then you protect him from anything that could harm him. He's living on easy street. He doesn't have a worry in the world. Of course he's your best man. He's also your richest man. You do take care of your own, don't you? Now, behind it all is a not-so-subtle message. You've bribed him with prosperity. You dangle riches in front of him like a carrot on a stick. Satan is accusing God of rigging the system. It's as if there were a contract between Job and God that went like this. I'll be good, you will bless me. I'll be pious, and you will give me prosperity. This is the Old Testament version of what is called today prosperity theology. And note that it comes from Satan, not from God. Satan is attacking God's motive and Job's motive and God's integrity. Now, here is a real question of the book of Job. Will anyone serve God for no personal gain? Satan says no. Job will worship God only when things are going his way. Therefore, he says in verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan's question is an important question of life. You serve God in the sunshine. Will you serve him in the shadows? You believed him in the light of day. Will you still believe him at midnight? You sang his praises when all was going well. Will you still sing through your tears? You came to church and declared, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is he still your shepherd when your world falls apart? Let's apply this in a practical way. God was good enough for you when you had money in the bank. Is he good enough for you when you have no money at all? He was good enough for you when you had your health. Is he good enough when the doctor says you have six months to live? He was good enough when you were married. Is he good enough when the one you love walks out on you? He was good enough when all your family was together. Is he good enough when you stand before an open grave of one of your children? It's not hard to believe God when everything is going your way. Most people do that. But when your world falls apart, what then? Satan accurately analyzed why many people trust God. They're what we call fair-weather believers. Following God only when everything is going well or for what they can get. Adversity destroys superficial faith. Satan attacked Job's motives, saying that Job was blameless and upright only because he had no reason to turn against God. 
Ever since he had started following God, everything had gone well for him. Job was serving God only because it paid to do so, not because of any moral or spiritual qualities. Satan claims that if God were to remove his blessings from Job's life, his true evil nature would be revealed because Job's life was where he just worshipped the Lord, not out of love, but because God had given him so much. Now, to prove Satan wrong, God says to him, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now the scene shifts from heaven to earth. Satan has received God's permission to put Job to the test. And notice in verse 13 that it happens on a day where his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. In a moment of great happiness at a family reunion when you would least expect it, Satan strikes. First, the Sabians steal Job's livestock and kill his servants. Second, the fire of God destroys his sheep and kills his servants. Third, the Chaldeans steal his camels and kill his servants. And fourth, a great wind hits the house where the children are feasting and kills them all. The four messengers of misfortune come to Job one after another. Three times, the text says, while he was still speaking. In the space of a few minutes, through no cause of his own, Job lost everything that was dear to him. His vast wealth vanished. His empire crumbled. His workers murdered His children killed. And that's the worst of it all. When tragedy strikes, it often comes again and again. And we think, this must be the worst of it. Then comes another knock at your door. Just when it seems that things can't get worse, your world falls apart again. As can be seen later in the book, for Job, the greatest trial was not the pain or the loss. It was not being able to understand why God allowed all this suffering to come upon him. Have you ever gone through an extremely difficult time when you wanted to bang on the gates of heaven, demanding an explanation for the pain and suffering that you were experiencing? It seems that the lives of many people, when they go through difficult times, is like that. Now let's look at Job's response, verses 20 to 22. And this is impressive. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, 
Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't complain. He didn't blame God. He didn't get all angry and upset and say, why? Why is this happening to me? What have I done that all these things should suddenly come upon me? No, verse 20 says, then he fell to the ground and worshipped. Here is the ultimate response of the man of faith in the face of unexplainable tragedy. He weeps and then he worships. This is what differentiates the Christian from the rest of the world. They weep. We weep. They get angry. We worship. Our sorrow is just as real as theirs. But their sorrow leads only to despair. Whereas ours leads to worship. That's profound faith. C.S. Lewis once remarked when asked the question, why should the righteous suffer? Why not, he replied. <laughs> They're the only ones that can handle it. Job had lost his possessions and family in this first of Satan's attacks, but he reacted rightly toward God by acknowledging God's sovereign authority over everything God had given him. Satan lost the first round. Job passed the test and proved that people can love God for who he is, not for what he gives. The scene in heaven repeats itself with a new twist. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Again, there was a day when the, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has you'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, He's in your hand. Only spare his life. Satan is given permission to attack Job physically. And what an attack it was. Job's new affliction intensified the pain he already felt. Verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Some scholars think that these painful sores was a form of elephantiasis, which not only covered the body with running, putrefying sores, but also caused the members to swell up 
and become bloated and distorted. Whatever it was, it rendered Job a pitiful spectacle, a repulsive hawk of a man, swollen and disfigured and hurting with these running sores. He ends up sitting in the ashes, scraping the pus from his sores with a broken piece of pottery. To cap it all, the one to whom he ought to have been able to to turn to for emotional support turned against him. His wife says to him in verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's easy to see that her faith has crumbled under this attack. She no longer believes that God is loving, thoughtful, and just. She sees her husband's suffering as proof, as many people have done in times of trial, believing that God has forsaken his promises, that the Bible isn't true. How many times as a pastor in Brazil did I try to comfort people going through difficult times and have them say to me, Pastor, I've tried these promises. I tried believing God, but it doesn't work. Have you ever said that? When Job's wife, what Job's wife has said is getting close to what Satan was trying to get Job to do, curse God and die. He used Job's wife as his instrument, and just as Eve became the instrument to get at Adam in the Garden of Eden, the assault upon Job's emotional life comes through his wife. She advises him to do three things. Give up your integrity, or give up your faith, curse God, and die. She's clearly suggesting suicide. She says it would be better for you to take your life than to go on like this. So poor Job, bound by physical pain, sits in humility with a disfigured body and suffers from a sense of emotional abandonment by his wife. In the Old Testament, we learn that those who cursed God were to be stoned to death. Notice how Job responds to his wife's solution for his suffering. Job responds with a tremendous truth. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? We take God's joy, the pleasant things of life, with gladness and gratitude. But if God chooses to send or permit something that's difficult, should we then abandon that gratitude and begin to curse him in protest because life is suddenly different from what we thought it would be? Ask yourself this question. Why am I here? It's not merely that we might have a good time, even though God in his grace does give us many, many hours of joy and gladness, of pleasure and delight. 
And it's right for us to give thanks. But we should not abandon that attitude when the time of pressure comes. For that's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to begin to complain and to protest to God, to get upset and angry and resentful, to stop going to church, to stop reading the Bible. That's what Satan's whole attack in our lives is aimed at doing because his goal is to defeat and destroy us. The passage ends with these amazing words. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't ask why. He didn't accuse God of not loving him. He didn't curse God. And he didn't give up his faith. As I studied this remarkable story, four conclusions came to my mind. Number one, undeserved suffering often comes to righteous men and women. This is an obvious lesson. And although we've heard it before, we need to hear it again. Three times the text emphasizes that Job was a righteous man. What happened to him did not happen because of any moral fault or hidden sin. It's a human tendency when tragedy strikes to believe that if we had only lived a better life, the tragedy would never have happened. Sometimes that's true, but more often it's not. If the story of Job teaches us anything, it's that sometimes... Godly people suffer unexplainable losses. Terrible things happen sometimes to God's people. Number two, God is the source and owner of all we have. Because God is the ultimate source of all that we have, he has the absolute right to take that which belongs to him. I have a pastor friend in Brazil, and one day he was out doing visitation, and he remembered he had to get something from his apartment. So he drives back to his apartment, parks the car, runs in, gets what he had forgotten, a matter of just minutes, and then goes out, and his car is gone. It had been stolen, and I'll never forget his answer. God owns everything I have. If he wants to let my car be stolen, (laughs) that's up to him. All that we have belongs to God. And in the end, we will give it all back to him. Sometimes he'll take back something sooner than we would like to give it. But that is his absolute right. For he is God. Job stated it well in chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Third conclusion. Our personal trials relate to God's purpose for our lives. Our personal trials are never caused by blind fate or bad luck. They all somehow relate to God's purpose for our life. If we don't come to believe this, we will eventually give up our faith. When tragedy strikes, 
The tendency is to search for a cause, a reason, an explanation. But as we search for causes, we will go back and back and back until at last we come to God. And as I said, if we do not eventually conclude that what happens to us is somehow related to God's purpose for our life, even though we don't understand, we will sooner or later give up our faith altogether. And the fourth conclusion. The purpose of trials and suffering is to draw us closer to God and make us more like Jesus. The one great biblical purpose for suffering and trials is not to ask, why did this happen to me? The deeper question is, now that this has happened, will I remain loyal to God? And that brings us back to the title of my message. When your world falls apart, what then? If we turn away from our faith in times of trouble and suffering, what shall we turn to? When our world falls apart around us and all that we value most is taken from us, if we then give up our faith, where will we go? What will we do? Dr. Francis Schaeffer once said that the first argument of the gospel is not as we often think that Jesus died for our sins. Nor is it as we are sometimes told, God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Dr. Schaefer says that the first argument of the gospel is, God is there. There is a God. And he is in, he is in control of our lives. And when our world falls apart through our tears, we can rest our confidence on this great truth. God is there. God is there with us. And he who brought us this far will take us safely home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We come to you in prayer, humbled by your presence and in awe of your power and glory. We thank you for your unconditional love and the countless blessings that you showered upon us. We ask for your guidance and strength as we face the challenges of this world. Help us to trust in you and your plan for us, even when times are tough. Give us the courage to persevere and to follow your path, no matter where it leads us. Heal our broken world, Lord, and help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing hope and light to those in need. And most of all, we give you our deepest gratitude and love for your never-ending grace mercy, and presence. May we always live our lives in a way that glorifies you and brings honor to, to your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.